We're headed over to Mark chapter 1 as we get started this morning. Mark chapter 1. Let me see where you're thinking about the holidays. What kind of things will people wait a long time in line to purchase during the holidays? They don't mind staying in line purchasing what? What's that? Any ideas? Sale, sale items. Sale items food. food. What do you stay in line for? Oh, no. Nothing. <laughs> You're the wrong crowd to ask. What would you say? Post office. No, we're the only ones that do that. I mean, you're the only one that does that, yeah. Here we go. Clothing, jewelry, food, video games, electronic devices, toys was number one. Name a reason you might not get home for the holidays. Weather? Military? Live too far away? Snow? What'd you say? Okay, here's what they said. Too much homework. Who has too much... It's right? Okay. Car problems, too far away, uh, broke, work, and sick. Name a great gift to give a kid if you don't live with them. They're not your kid. You don't have to put up with them. What are you going to buy them? Drum set. (laughs) What else? What's that? What'd you say? Bowling sets? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what you do hour after hour. Did somebody give your kids that? Yeah. (laughs) Here's what they said. Toy guns, horns, guitar, dog, candy. Number one? Drum Drum set was number one. Absolutely. Name something that probably drops off in sales during the winter months. Swimsuits is going to be there. What else? Sunglasses. What did you say? Suntan lotion. It's not there, but that's probably true. What's that? Water hoses, not up there, but it's the good ones. What? Convertible? Convertible? <laughs> Air conditioners. Okay. Ice cream, lawn care stuff, pools, pool equipment, summer clothes, and number one with swimsuits. Uh, here we go. Name something that a kid might use to slide down the stairs. Cardboard? Banister? Pillows? Mattress? You guys get most of them. Some of you, some of you know this. Okay, I saw on the the grandkids wanted to see one of the Home Alones, and he uses an ironing board upside down. That was clever. He's got something to hang on to. I'm going to try that at their house. Okay, here they said mattress, pillow, they're behind, blanket, cardboard box, and sled was number one. Using a sled. Okay, name a profession where you might get fired if you lose your voice. Singer, radio announcer, what? What'd you say, Danny? Danny, that was your voice, wasn't it? Preacher. I better never lose my voice. So just Here's what they had. Actor, telemarketer, receptionist, teacher, radio host, and singer. Nah, 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 nah. Oh, I stuck it in there. One hour points for preacher, just just because I knew somebody would bring it up. Here we go. Speaking of voices, we're talking about Jesus Christ and his voice. Becoming more like him. One of the things that stands out in Mark chapter 1. Are you there? Did I say Mark 1 already? Mark chapter 1, something that stands out. And we've talked about his holiness and focused on that. Where we were last week is talking about another aspect of his characteristic. And we want to get into his voice, his speech in, uh, in a few moments. But let's wrap up where we started last week. Mark chapter 1, there came a leper unto him, beseeching him and kneeling down to him, saying unto him, If you will, you can make me clean. 
And Jesus, what's your next phrase in your Bible? I'm in Mark chapter 1. I'm sorry, verse 40, 41. Okay, I'm sorry. I'll do that again. Verse 40 says, There came a leper to him, beseeching him, kneeling down, saying, If you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion. Do you all have that? Okay. That's the eye that phrase shows up that we wanted we started exploring last week and several times in the gospels. And so what I've done is just taken that phrase and put it out and we were talking last week where does it show up where he was moved with compassion and or it states something that he shows great compassion. We know he loves us because he died for us buried and resurrected. But in a physical earthly relationship with other people, these passages show up in those settings. Not the idea of for God so loved the world that he gave his son, but Jesus dealing with people. And so we can follow that example. We already pointed out this one, that he was moved with compassion when there's a single leper who has a physical need. The Mark chapter 6 talks about, and Matthew 14, the 5,000 that are with him for a period of time. And it says he was moved with compassion because they were sheep without a shepherd. In other words, they were floundering spiritually. They didn't have those teachers. So he began to teach them many things, it says. And later that day, he says, give them something to eat because they've been with me so long. And what did he, you know, we know what he did for them. But he's moved with compassion for these people who have a spiritual need. And then later on, they have a physical need. In Matthew chapter 9, this is the text that most of us are familiar with where that says, um, lift up your eyes. Uh, No, I'm sorry. This is the one that pray ye the Lord of the harvest because the laborers are few, the harvest is great. Okay, and so uh, in reverse order. But that's the text. Previous to when he says that, the comment is made that he went about the villages teaching, preaching, and healing people, saw the multitudes, he's moved with compassion because they fainted, were scattered abroad as one without a shepherd. Again, we're talking about their spiritual condition, that they were, with, they, they were just floundering. The teachers weren't teaching. They were abusing and, and fleecing the flock. And we know what Jesus told the disciples to do, to pray for more laborers to teach the truth. Luke chapter 7, okay? Jesus enters the city of Nain. He encounters a funeral. Who's he, who's he have compassion for? What's that? This isn't Lazarus. This is a different one. The mother of the man who died in this one. There's two times Jesus raised people from the dead. There's Lazarus, as you said, and then there's this one. And so the widowed mother, it says he has compassion on her. And what does he do for her? Okay. He tells her not to sorrow. Okay? Because then what does he do for her? Raises the son, brings him back to dead, uh, from the dead. So you have in Matthew 15, and I want you to be thinking, because we want to put this all together. Who, what cases, how many, all those things, where and in what settings is he showing compassion? Here's another setting. Matthew chapter 15, Mark 8. He's ministering to lots of people, 4,000 men, well, then you have the children, uh, the uh, spouses. He told his disciples, I have compassion on the multitudes because they've been with me for three days and now they have nothing to eat. I will not send them away fasting lest they faint. What moved him here in this moment? Their physical need. Their physical need. Okay, and we know what he did, that he, cre- that he creates the feeding of the thousands. Again, he duplicates it. This is the freeing of the maniac of Gadara. What did he do for that man? Okay, he releases him from the 
the demon possession, that man who was crazy, all of a sudden he is found sitting at the... Do you remember the story? Where is he sitting that they find him when the villagers come back? He's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and he's in his right mind. The man asked Jesus if he could do something. Do you remember what his request is? Can I go with you? What's Jesus' response? What's he go on and say? Yeah, he says to him, and let me see if I put it. Go home to your friends. Tell them how great things the Lord has done for you and has had compassion on you. Okay, what did Jesus do for this man that shows compassion? He healed him. In which ways? He's, he, in every which way, okay? Physically, spiritually, socially is this man restored? Okay, mentally capabilities, it's a profound instance, okay, but he's moved with compassion. John 11, this is the one that you mentioned, okay, Tom, where you said it's the story of Lazarus. Jesus comes, and there's a statement made about Jesus loving Lazarus. Do you remember who makes it? The crowd makes it. Why is that? What, what motivates them to make this comment? He is at the graveside, and he was crying for Lazarus. Now, remember the setting. Was this dangerous for Jesus to go there? Yes, because they already had that, quote-unquote, warrant out for his arrest. He's within eight miles of Jerusalem. His disciples even said, if we go, they've been trying to kill you. And when Jesus says, I'm going to go, the disciple says, then we will go with you and we will die. Okay, so uh, there's just this mindset that he's in great danger, but he shows up. And who does he minister to first when he first shows up? Mary and Martha, how does he do that? He talks with them, share, reassures them, tries to get them direct on the future and the resurrection, and the crowd says, see how much he loved him. And we all know what the outcome is. He heals Lazarus and brings him back to life. Matthew 20, this is on his last journey to Jerusalem. He's headed, he's left now uh, the region up north, and he's headed for Jerusalem on the way Two blind men come, and this is by the old city of Jericho or Jezreel. And what did the what they they're saying? Heal us, heal us, thou son of David. What did the disciples tell him and the crowd? Yeah, get away from us. Be quiet. Be quiet. Don't bother them. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Again, if you were in Jewish society and somebody had a physical handicap, what is the significance of touching that person? Okay, could you become unclean by touching? Okay, so Jesus is moving. Now, keep in mind, all these things are showing compassion. How did he operate in all these cases? So taking them, let's add all of that together, okay? And we had looked at most all of those more, more uh, thoroughly last week. Let's just answer, I'm going to ask you three questions, see how you ask him. What was it that moved Jesus so deeply? It repeatedly says he's moved with compassion. What moved Jesus? Go ahead. Okay. The sense that he is he is having some type of response to them. Okay. What else may be may be a fact? What what are, were some of the factors that were physical? Okay, or realistic. How do I? I'm not sure how I want to say it. What are the factors played into it? What's hunger, illness, death? 
which indicates Jesus was concerned in what ways? Hunger, illness, and death. Their physical well-being moved Jesus. Yes? Now, does physical well-being move us? It should, okay? Um, Was that the only thing that moved Jesus? You've already, you've already alluded to it, that people came. Why, why did they come? What were they looking for? The physical healing, but was that it? Okay, so people are seeking some help, some answers, things of that sort. So in the, was he moved by their spiritual conditions? It's stated a couple of times they were as sheep without a shepherd. Okay, and so he's moved by their spiritual ignorance, their spiritual blindness, put a word in there, their spiritual hunger, oh, that's a good one, okay, how about their spiritual domination, dominated and kept in their spiritual repression, suppression, was that happening by the leadership, okay, so that moved him, so um, I put down these thoughts, just, you know, you summarize most of them, the spiritual poverty of people moved Jesus, Okay, and the reason I'm saying this is I'm, I'm trying to do self-evaluation for me. Is what moves me when I see people? Okay, Jesus is moved by the spiritual poverty, which included their situation in the sense that they were oppressed by other spiritual leaders. The harvest is plenteous. There's so many people that are without the truth. That motivated him. That moved him. The lack of laborers for that area really motivated him. We saw that in these accounts. So he is moved by physical, spiritual condition, the poverty of individuals. He's moved by that. He is moved when it comes to, we can ask ourselves, are we moved by the spiritual conditions of others? And and that's a valid thing. When we go to the store and see a crowd, do we see competition to get to the counter? Or do we see souls that at times are trying to satisfy Christmas with things? Okay? The physical problems of others. We already noted he's moved with compassion, healed their sick. Moved with compassion, he's, he's going to meet a physical need of, of their hunger. He's got compassion, he touches their eyes. Here is something for us when we, in our circles, we are not proponents of missions works that, that solely seek to meet the physical needs of people, the social gospel, okay? Is there some, anything wrong with meeting the needs, the physical needs of people? No, but there has to be a combination and a balance of the two. And sometimes we in our circles, in our churches, we swing the pendulum. We're afraid to be associated with those who don't do any gospel. So historically, people who were in the biblical camp that we would call you know, conservative, fundamental, historically, they didn't do anything physically. For, for years, there was a tendency of don't do it lest you be doing what the liberals do. Well, where's Jesus in this? Does Jesus help out the physical needs? Is it okay for us to invest in, after a hurricane, to invest in ministries that will go and help rebuild facilities, provide water, clothing, houses, but also share the gospel? Is that okay? Okay. Uh, And so Jesus did that. Not only did he say it's okay, he actively did that. 
he helped meet people's needs. Okay? So he didn't ignore them. He didn't ignore either big or small needs. What do we mean by that? He saw crowds of how many? 4,000. But he also saw the physical needs of, okay, the leper or two lepers. Okay, so he helps in, uh, at all different levels that he's doing that, and he doesn't excuse himself. Something else that struck me, the emotional pain. Which one of all the characters that we talked about, or two of the characters that we talked, instances, where there's emotional pain? Mary and Martha, and the widow. Okay, they would stand out, right? I mean, is there emotional pain in the lepers? Yeah, because they're ostracized, all those things. But Mary and Martha and the widow, um, they would stand out. Oh, um, in the point that, that, you know, he does things for them. So I had to ask, these were the questions I asked myself, okay? This is for me. So I just put it up on the wall for you. Do I have that same balance in my compassion, you know, by the plight of others? Does that move me? Or can I be so busy, I ignore it? Okay, with the sense that Jesus was not so heavenly minded that he ignored the physical needs. Where am I in that regard? Jesus was moved by individual, not just large groups. Where am I in that one? He was moved by the needs of nobodies. It is easy in our society to be moved by the needs of the somebodies, the somebody we know, the somebody who is like us, but ignore the plight of those who are taken up in sex trafficking that nobody wants anything to do with anymore, that are being abused and they're nobodies. So there's those types of thoughts that go through my mind. Here's another question that I wanted to ask. I asked me, okay, and it is this. What did Jesus do when he was moved this way? Without, without reading the answer here that I put up there, what's the key word in that question? He acted. It is one thing for us to be moved but it's another thing to, to do something about it, to actually do something, to get engaged. Okay? We, we see it on the TV. We see stuff that just moves us. We read the emails, like the one that's in the bulletin today, that Bruce talks about the situation there in the Ukraine, where people are so glad to get one loaf of bread. That's not us. That's not us. None of us, none of us have experienced that one. But they'd kiss the loaf of bread that's handed out. It's one thing to be moved. It's another thing to do something. And so Jesus did something. And this, this I struggle with. Because we look at the example of Christ and we say, well, he used his abilities. Where does that leave us? How, how, when, when, if, I, if you were teaching this to a bunch of kids, what might they say to you? you know, use your abilities the way Jesus did. I don't have the abilities. I definitely don't have the abilities that Jesus did. I mean, seriously, what did Jesus do that we can't? The healing. Yeah, and so we can easily look at that and say, well, that was the Lord. We can't do that. And excuse ourselves. Okay, think this through with me. Okay, Jesus did the miracles, da-da-da-da-da-da. None of us can do that. Okay, but the point is, even though we can't do the miracles, we do have spiritual gifts. How many of us in this room have a spiritual gift? 
every single one of us, according to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Every one of us. And what is the purpose of the spiritual gift? To keep to ourself? To, 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 yeah, to share with others in some way or shape, okay? We do have God-given abilities. We have, as well, God-given opportunities. Um, so in that we have wherewithal, ours isn't miracle power, but we do have, at times, the finances. We do have, at times, the technology. We do have, at times, the availability through standing at line at the post office and getting something that's shipped to give a hand. It's the problem isn't that we don't have the opportunity. The problem for most of us is we don't take the time. We just don't do it. And so I'm, I'm challenging my own heart, saying, okay, moved with compassion with people here on this earth. He used his abilities. Here's a thought for you. He used his spiritual tools. I'm not talking about his miracle power. I'm talking beyond that, okay? He taught spiritual truth on more than one occasion when he was moved with compassion. It moved him to share truth. The 5,000, Mary and Martha, his, his initial reaction is, I'm going to give them spiritual truth. How many of us in this room can give spiritual truth? All of us. It's not that you, you can't say, well, I don't have an opportunity to learn it. You can't say that. But it's taking the opportunity to disseminate it, to give it out. So he gave out the spiritual truth. Does he pray for others? in spiritual needs? Does he encourage prayer for others in spiritual need? Pray ye the Lord of the harvest, okay? That they would send forth laborers. What's the purpose of the laborers? To share spiritual truth. So did he give encouragement to those who were emotionally devastated? Whose are two instances that we said about emotionally devastated? The widow, Mary Martha, did he encourage them? Yes, but it takes time. So the other thing that I thought is he uses his influence. Okay, what I mean by this is Jesus uses his influence with the Father by praying. Jesus uses his influence with other disciples to rally them to try to minister to people. Jesus uses his influence upon the disciples further, and even us, pray ye the Lord of the harvest. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to help rally others to this cause. So it's easy for us to see needs, and it's easy for us to give excuses, but if we're going to be like the Lord when it comes to compassion, we need to act. We need to do. Does it need to be publicized? No. But it needs to be put into action. The other thought that I wanted just to highlight this, because in your mind already, if you're, if you're looking for a way of, of, to get out of what we're talking about, this is coming into your mind already. The excuses. The, but you don't understand my circumstance. So here's the third question that I wanted to bring up. What was going on in Jesus' life when he was moved with compassion? What was going on? Was he sitting around doing nothing? He was already doing his father's will. Okay, if we take the settings and just summarize it, 
has he done a lot for people already? Before he goes to Mary and Martha and encourages them and ministers them, has he already done a lot in the previous two and a half years, three years? He's done a lot. What could he have easily said? I'm done. I've done enough already. So we look and say, okay, in the moment, by the way, that he is moved with compassion in Matthew chapter 9, um, yeah, he's going about their cities. The word is he's going about the cities repeatedly, healing, 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 doing miracles, and he's still moved with compassion, even though he's done a lot already. In this text, uh, he is already six months into ministry, very impacting, reached out, healed many people, and the point is he doesn't become calloused. He doesn't become apathetic because he's done something. He's, done an, he's made an effort at another occasion, so I've done my turn. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say that. He's extremely busy. Okay? Not only has he done a lot, he's very busy. Um, in fact, the time when the people come to him and there's the thousands, I can't remember if it's the four or the five thousand, when they come to him and they follow him into the wilderness, do you remember what his situation was? He had already left to, leave, to get away from the people because he is emotionally stressed. Somebody that he was close to has been killed. John the Baptist. He went into the wilderness to get away from the crowd and to, to depart. And the crowd follows him. And when the crowd follows him, he still ministers. Even though his schedule, it wasn't, it wasn't there on the docket. It wasn't what he wanted to be. He was trying to get away. He is still open to ministering to individuals. And that's this point where that 14, that thousands, that he got away from the crowd. But when the crowd came to him, he's ministering. The bottom line is Jesus ministered to people in multiple ways. How often? Okay, it was a constant burden. Did he ever take, did he ever get away from the crowds? Yes, he did. Okay, so let's not, ex, let's not ex, exaggerate to a point that, you know, that he couldn't sleep at night. But there were moments that that happened, that they kept him going all day. But he's trying to teach his disciples a balance. We need to come apart from the crowds, and he does that at times, does retreats with them. But even when he is in several times, when he is in busyness, he is still not using those excuses. So I started, I started to ask myself these questions. If, if I were, yeah, this is not to be irreverent. If I were Jesus and I were giving the excuses that I give, how might that look? Um, he might have said this, I'll let somebody else do it. He might have said, I've done a lot already. He might have said, I'm dying in the next weeks. I'm giving my life. That, that I've, I'm giving an awful lot already. Let somebody else give. He might have said this, you know, once I die, I'll be back in heaven and without limitations that I've taken upon myself, I can do much more later on. Or he might have said, the Holy Spirit will come, let him do it. Besides, let my disciples, they're going to increase the number. There'll be a lot more of them. A lot more will get done. Or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. I'm thinking, what are some of the things I come up with at times? 
for not ministering to individuals, not doing the simple things like visiting the widows, helping the parentless who are in need. It's not just a crisis situation. He's engaging people in everyday situations where they have needs. It doesn't need to be a hurricane. It doesn't need to be something tragic. It doesn't need to be a war. He is helping people in his everyday society that's facing everyday issues without excuse. That's being moved with compassion. Now, I don't know about you. Me, I am just blistered internally by thinking this through. Just challenged immensely to say there's got to be improvement. Another area that really challenges me is this one, and that is in living holy like Christ, it's the idea of learning to speak like Christ, talk like Christ. So when you and I start thinking about this, and there's not much passage, but there's some really interesting passages that talked about it. I got a question for you, okay? What do you think Jesus talked like? I'm not talking vocally, okay? Because me, I would rather choose that really interesting, more bassy voice that if I did this too long, you're all going to giggle, okay? I would change lots of things about my, capa- my, my vocal abilities. How do you think he talked? In an everyday life, do you, what do you think about Jesus that was, would be different from a lot of people today? Do you think he talked softly? Did he ever get loud? Okay, okay. What, what do you think in his speech? Do you think he had a sweet voice? Why, why would you even think that? I agree with you, and there's reasons why I agree with you. Okay. Okay. Okay, so his words were very sweet. Okay. What, what else do you think? Do you mean like using verbose language that they could understand? He didn't use all the theological terms? Is that what you mean? The big, the big terms? Okay. He became all things to all men. Okay. Okay. I think you're right. I think by the illustration of as a child and then later on he can do that and he was wise. But do you think he had a commanding, uh, the capability to project? So he could get loud. Without sounding angry. How do you know that? Because that's supposed to be the crowd. It's our Wednesday night Bible study. What are we talking on? The Wednesday Bible studies. The sermon on the mount. Okay? And he's in a natural environment. And definitely could there have been reflection from the, from the hillside... But still speaking to thousands of people without sounding angry. That's a gift. What else strikes you? People were drawn. Okay, what does that tell you about the way he spoke? Okay, do you think he was interesting? Just, I mean, just, just 
from the, the tone and how he spoke, do you think he had some ability that kept their interest? Yeah, because how often did they stay with him at times? Three days. Seriously. Would you stay and listen to somebody that spoke just monotone for three days? And after a bit, what are you going to do? And I say, get fired up. <laughs> Go. After a while, what are you going to do? Okay. <laughs> Ken? Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt about that. There's no doubt. We have, we don't have anything given. I keep on going forward too much. I'm sorry, up in the balcony. I, all you guys see is my tuft up there half the time. Sorry about that. Um, we don't have anything about his nature of his voice, other than speculation. What do we have about the way he spoke? We have three or four statements how he spoke, little, that are in scriptures. Anybody remember any of them? He spoke with authority. Okay, we're going to look at that. What did somebody else say? Okay, okay. Um, we don't know how he spoke other than you have made my house, my father's house, a den of thieves. There is another time, not, there's three times, two times, where it says he spoke with authority. Yeah, two times. There's another phrase, they marveled at the blank words that he spoke. Gracious, gracious words. And the other time, I'm going to come to it in a minute. Anyway, let, as we get into it, we know this is true. We know that what we say is important. Not only what we say, but how we say it. Okay, And how we say it is extremely important. So when we start thinking, you know, the words that Jesus spoke, you know, what kind of words did he use? Do you, do you think he called his siblings' name? You're a goofball. You're a, you know, whatever. He, he had brothers and sisters that didn't treat him all the time real well. Okay? So none of you would ever have done this. Okay? called family members a name. Do you think he cussed or used off-colored speech? Now we have to define what's cussing. Is cussing only using God's name in vain? No, it isn't, folk. It isn't just anything goes. Somebody told me recently, as long as we're not using God in it, anything goes. That's not true, according to Ephesians 5. That's unwholesome speech. Okay, inappropriate speech is also in this category of off-colored. Do you think he raised his voice? I think he did at times, like the temple, and when he was speaking to a crowd, but he was, he was effective. Um, do you think when he got... Now, none of you would do this, but this is in my life. When you're tired or you're hangry, you can be abrupt in your tone. Do you think Jesus was that way? Do you think he was polite? And respectful. Okay. Do you think uh, you know, the, word, the words that he used... I, I'm going back to what you said, Patty. 
Do you think he spoke that people could understand him in a manner that they could relate to? I know this in his public teaching. He used, unlike most others, he used something that people keeps people's attention. Stories, illustrations, brought it right down to real life. Just fascinating studying that. So, um, you know, what did Jesus, when, when Jesus was in pain and agony, how did he speak to people? And it's an interesting study to just look at it. I wanted you to catch this, okay? That we have several verses that talk about how he spoke. This is one of the Messianic Psalms. Grace is poured into your lips. God has blessed you forever. All Nazareth witnessed to him. They wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. The officers say, never spake one like this one. I, I want to develop that one in a moment. He taught them as one having an authority, not as the scribes. That's stated twice, okay? That he had authority, not as the scribes. And I want to dissect that, okay? Because some of those statements are observations from his followers or his non-followers, his enemies. And they're commenting on how he speaks and what type of speech. So... When it talks about, to me, I'm understanding that not, not just the, the con, it's both content and nature. His tone and his content was something that was impacting, that people noticed, that drew people. He spoke with authority. What does that mean? He spoke with authority and not as the scribes. Coming out of Jewish society, that means something to them. Does it mean... He spoke and said, this is what we're going to do. Is that the authority? Is it his tone? What does that phrase mean? Okay, that, 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 that is part of it. Okay, she said there's confidence he knew. How do, you, you have to understand what I'm, what I'm trying to get to. The comparison is important here. How did the scribes teach and speak? Their content was legalism. But how did they present it? What's that? Okay, that's a possibility they were up here. What What did the scribes do regularly? It was their practice to lend themselves credibility as they spoke. That's it. So if I wanted to give credibility to what I'm teaching, I would say, well, let me show you. Julie Hallman says, okay, and I would quote, probably not a woman, so I take that back, Julie, okay. You would quote previous teachers, okay. Um, So I would quote if I were doing this. Well, H.A. Ironside said this. Charles Spurgeon said this. Uh, Barack Obama, no, I, I wouldn't, not in religious areas, okay. I would be, I'm trying to illustrate, I'd be very selective in who I would pick that I'm quoting. And I would quote them as my authority. They, so-and-so wrote this, so-and-so wrote that. Because in the Jewish society, how was teaching passed down? Uh, yeah, generation after generation. Did they expand upon the law by the teacher's writing and creating their interpretations. Yeah. 
Yes, yes, okay. That was very common. So if you were going to speak with authority, the more people you could quote, the more authority you carried. Who does Jesus quote? Think of the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say, okay. So when Jesus spoke, did he use a lot of Scripture? Okay, that wasn't common. And what did he say about his own words as authoritative? Okay, let's take the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, if you listen to my words, you are like a wise man that built his house upon a... He is saying his own words are authoritative. He's quoting from Scripture, he's explaining Scripture, and he's saying, I don't need somebody else's authority. I have authority. But he didn't say it in in a way that people would react against him like he's a kook. He backed it up. And so when he's talking this way, you have to understand that citing others was... And by the way, your kids do this all the time. Or they did, didn't they? Well, everybody else... Okay, they're citing authority. So that's not unusual for the Jewish people, but they would do it in their... In their uh, but do politicians do this? Do they ever cite Abraham Lincoln? Uh, do they ever cite some other president? Yeah, it's, it's a thing that happens a lot, and so they would do it. So Jesus didn't cite others, and as we said, he repeated Scripture, and I say unto you, he who listens to my words. So in that sense, he was extremely different in his teaching. The other one that strikes me is he's gracious. What's it mean he was gracious in his words? Grace is poured into your lips, Psalm 45. What does that mean to you, that he was gracious in his words? Okay, okay. Did, did he, did he uh, what's the word I want to do? Did he portray, do you think, a spirit of authority with humility? Okay. What else comes with graciousness? Define, you look at somebody that you say, that person, they're gracious in their speech. They speak with kindness? Okay, okay. Can they, be, can they be confrontational at times? Can they be reproving at times? Yes? Yes, yes. Okay. So what strikes me is that one of the things that has to be in his speech, in his words, is hope. Because remember, what did we already learn? What, what is the society as a whole? They were as sheep. Okay. So one of the things that people have to have, okay, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, Proverbs says. Okay, hope is just essential. It's essential to you. If you don't see any light at the end of the tunnel, you, you just give up. And so he's giving, you know, that idea where there's doubt, okay? Uh, words, uh, uh, his manner that attracted people. He had to have in his speech content and delivery that was attractive to even as, as Heather, you mentioned, the kids come to him. Those people who were rejected by everybody, why would a 
prostitute. Why would a leper go to Jesus? Okay? Okay? So he's portraying this. And I know that there's the work of the Spirit involved as well. But there's this whole idea that Jesus had to be presenting truth that they were catching, that they were getting, that had hope for them. And at the same time, is he blunt about hell? Yes. But people need to hear that or they will not have hope. That sounds contrary, doesn't it? But if they, if they don't hear the truth of hell, then they're, they're desperate shape. This is a passage that I, that I did a little bit more study on because it threw me for a bit. It's in John chapter 7. And uh, just go there. I, I, this is about, they're commenting on his speech in John 7. Man, we are moving slow as a snail. Sorry about that. Okay, you've got to get the setting. John seven thirty seven. It's the last day of what? The Feast of Tabernacles. How many people in the Jewish nation would go to Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles? Okay, remember the two big feasts that they go to? Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, and so Jesus is there and he's crying and they have the week-long thing and he's given an invitation multiple times. And he spake of the Holy Spirit in verse 39. Verse 40 is interesting. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard these sayings, or this saying, they said, he's a prophet. Many of the others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall he Christ come out of Galilee? Because what was Jewish statement? No good thing. Yeah. Okay. And then some say, you know, that Christ comes of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was. So he couldn't be coming out of Galilee. He had to come out of Judah. Okay. Bethlehem of Judea. And so there was a division among the people because of him. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Who are the some of the people that want to arrest him? In particular, do you know who they are? Who's the, it's, the, it's the Jewish leadership that they want to kill him. You go back to chapter 5 and you see that they want to kill him already. And so, who do they send to go and arrest him? Verse 45. Who, do the high, who does the high priest and the priest send out? The temple police, the officers, the temple cops. Do you remember in Jerusalem they had the Romans that were in authority, but they also had their own police force. And so they send their own police force to arrest him. And who does this police force, think this through, who does the police force work for? I'm not trying to be difficult here. Who's their bosses? The Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, that group. They work for them. So who do they, who do they blindly follow? Those people. Okay? They don't blindly do it this time. They're sent out to get him, but they come back and they're asked, why didn't you bring him back? Why didn't you bring him back? And their response is, never man spake like this one. Now remember, these are guys who are employed by the Sanhedrin. I'll just group it that way. The Sanhedrin employs them. For them not to do what the Sanhedrin said means they could lose their job. And if they come back and they advocate for Jesus, how are they going to be treated by the Sanhedrin? Are you idiots? Not you, for not answering. <laughs> okay. 
I, the Sanhedrin's going to look at them and say, we're not, and don't they do that? Don't they even say, yo, are you deceived? We, the rulers, are any of us believing in him? Yo, how can you be so dumb? So these guys come back. They're risking a lot by coming back without Jesus. Does that make sense to you? Okay. What stopped them from bringing Jesus? Was it the crowds? No. They don't say, the crowds kept us. That would have been the easy thing to do. Blame it on somebody else. The crowds scared us. They were protecting Jesus. They don't say that. What is it that stopped them in their tracks? Never man spake like this. It was the presentation of Jesus. It was the what he said, the way he said it. It stumped them, and they're his enemies. So we're putting all these things up. Okay, pro-Jesus, got all this. They are not a fear of the crowd. They're moved by Jesus' words. They're his enemies. They disobey their bosses. They risk everything. Dissecting this phrase is very interesting and in how different interpretations have come over the years. It could mean this. It could mean this is one possibility. Never a man spake like this man. What could they have meant by that? No teacher ever spoke like this man when it comes to teaching. He's far superior, unlike anybody that we've ever heard, and we are just amazed by his teaching ability. That is a possibility by the way it's phrased. Or there is another possibility of what they're saying that is even more impacting. If this is, and there's debate amongst the scholars with the original language, the way that the phrase is put together is the emphasis upon not a man. Not that he's a marvelous teacher, but he's something more than a man. The reason it would go this way. No mere man could speak like this, therefore he must be something more than a mere man. Do you see the emphasis there? The emphasis is, never could a man speak like this, a mere man. Or it could be, he's just the most unusual man. If they are meaning, if it meant, no man could speak like this way, what are they implying about Jesus? He is the Messiah. That's coming from his enemies who are moved simply by how he said certain truth. That's an amazing statement. And again, we'll get to heaven, we'll figure out which ones their, what was their emphases and what syllable they meant to put the emphasis. Okay, we don't know, but it could be either one. And so it's interesting then to say, okay, Jesus' speech was impacting even upon enemies. How did he speak? Let's pick up next week from there, okay? Thanks so much for your listening, your input. It's a delight to study like this with you.